Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 90. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the draft of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about making them have it. Um, playing around combat tricks, playing your own combat tricks, everything to do with combat tricks, removal, fast speed things, and when and when you shouldn't do it. Um, and this is, uh, I think, a, a great topic for this week because uh, this was all Hats' idea, and it was raining and cold and miserable out today, and I am super tired, and I have literally nothing to say on this subject. So I'm glad that Hats is taking charge. That's why I'm talking a lot in this introduction, because I'm going to be silent the rest of the podcast. So hello, Hats. Hey! (laughs) Glad to hear you'll be phoning it in. I'll I'll, uh, I'll do my best to monologue incoherently for an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah, because I just always make them have it. Like, my opponent could have four Maveloft deletes on board and eight open power. And I'm like, probably should attack in here. And uh, (laughs) usually they have it. If they have Maveloft deletes on board, they usually have it. Usually. Yeah, I'm like uh, I noticed. I noticed this pause since, since the first turn when they played a primal sigil. Yep. But that could be anything, really. If they have four Maveloft elites on board and eight open power and a hardiness in hand since the first turn, they're just toying with you, and it doesn't matter <laughs> what you do. <laughs> Your decisions but, uh, don't yeah. matter. <laughs> Your choices are irrelevant. Your life is going nowhere. So, so I, I think this is going to be a fun, uh, a fun topic, and we opened it up to the Discord. So, some, some listeners and people on Discord also submitted some questions for hats and not me to answer. So that'll be <laughs> you're free. You're free to you're free to jump in there. I know you don't want to. <laughs> no, there's one question. There was one question I saw that I thought I had something to say about, and um, I'll Great. I'll save. It. Save it for then. Sounds good. All right. So uh, before we get into it, uh, let's do our announcements where we thank uh, all our patrons over at patreon.com slash farming eternal, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to our show notes and recording bloopers. And I think uh, we've really upped our blooper game recently. So I think this is quite the perk. We've really gone wrong multiple times during every episode lately. <laughs> and it's fun yeah. to listen to. <laughs> And that little that little uh, Patreon hack that I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's still true. I still haven't checked whether anybody has quit the Patreon yet. So I'm telling you, everyone, this is your chance for me to read your name multiple times for a buck. So, <laughs> so, uh, so for for those for these uh, so-called patrons that. <laughs> may or may not still be supporting the show. Uh, thank you, Cotillion, Loki, Trickster, Sigma Tank, Mercurio Blue, Abinago, Meagles, Madness, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Jed the Hammer, Raven Dragon, S Red Zero, 215, uh, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yist Out. And uh, 
Esther0215, also known as psychologist, I think. So uh, maybe I should switch that up in the show notes for uh, for future reading. Um, I, would, I would recommend asking them which they prefer. Yeah, that's a good, that's a that's a really good idea. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Okay. All right. So cool. So um, in lieu of uh, oh no, <laughs> sorry, I don't, I don't know what's going. On. It was it was <laughs> don't 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 jump ship yet. <laughs> Wait till we get to the main topic. <laughs> I know. I was, I was already jumping ship, but I forgot to ask you about how your draft week was. Oh yeah, yeah. Would you like to? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I would. How was your draft week? It was fine. <laughs> I've drafted a bit this week, and it's mostly yeah. gone pretty well. Um, I, I heard Isomorphic's beating you right now. Isomorphic is number one right now on the on the uh, the Billboard Top 100 of draft. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, sc- he scooched ahead of me. Um, I was number one ahead of him for a little while, and then he's ahead of me now. There's there's seven or so of us that have been jockeying for the top spot, and uh, uh, maybe more, but I, I've, I haven't been lower than seven, no matter how bad a run I have lately. So I think it's, I think it's about seven of us. And yeah, I mean that's good. It shouldn't just be a locked list where no one can shift around. Yeah. Hey, so this is uh, totally unrelated to uh, anything we had planned on talking about today, mm-hmm. but. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast about Magic Draft, um, and it was an interview with this Magic streamer called Deathsea, um, who is a very good player, does a lot of quirky things. But one of the interesting things that they said is because in order to get um, more viewers to their stream, they always kind of try to go for number one mythic in Magic. and. They said the way that affects their draft is that they are always trying to draft great decks. And so they never try to draft like good decks because especially with with uh, the magic arena ranking algorithms, you know, you really need to go 7x in order to climb ranks. And so like if you're in the top 10 mythic and you go 6-3 or whatever, you know, you either you sometimes can just break even or lose a couple ranks. And so that changes how they draft. And I know that the um, Eternal has sort of, I've heard similar things about like top 10 uh, masters in Eternal. And I was, I kind of made me want to ask you whether that influences how you draft. Well, I would say that it's so difficult to draft a great deck in Eternal because the pieces for it will so rarely be there that it isn't worth uh, taking high-risk cards in general. Sometimes the whole thing will come together. Like, uh, if you can identify a very specific strategy um, that seems to be very, very open, then it's a good idea to move in on it. But I, in my experience, that happens so, uh, so, so very rarely um, that it's not good practice to uh, try to draft synergy from the beginning and then hope it gets there. Because you're, the percentage of times you'll actually end up with a great deck instead of a pile of cards 
um, with no like with synergy pieces without the synergy. Um, it just doesn't. Uh, it's like if you want to if you want to rise in the ranks, that's not a great idea. Uh, mm -hmm. it, what my strategy, my overall general draft strategy for being in the top five masters month, <laughs> like from month to month, which seems to be working, is to draft very safe and be willing to jump into a great deck if it's if it happens to be open. But uh, if I'm not having a super hot run, I'll have a 4-3, 6-3, 5-3, and then there'll be that 1-7-0 draft where it all came together, and that's the one where I rise several ranks and maybe take the number one spot again. But all those 4-3-5-3-6-3 drafts keep me about where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And I very rarely have a 0-3 like a, a, a or a 1-3 because I tend to draft pretty safe. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a good answer. So, uh, you, so you would say like if Eternal didn't have a ranking system, would you be drafting in a very similar? I would probably be drafting a little looser, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. I I would probably be trying. Um, to put together more sort of synergistic decks. But I might get tired of that because I would still be losing just as much if I did that. I, do, I think Eternal Draft is fundamentally different from Magic Draft because it's not constructed to uh, be where you can consistently draft an archetype the way Magic Draft is. Um, you the, the, you, you kind of have to draft pieces that are loosely synergistic with each other, a general idea behind a deck, a general strategy of being aggressive or controlling or tempo-oriented or whatever. Um, but because there's so little redundancy in most of the cards, in most of the common cards, in what their function is, you can't count on getting the uh, the effects that you need on the cards to fill in all of those gaps. Um, so it's it's not really a winning strategy to try to do that. You kind of have to take opportunities where you see them rather than trying to force a strategy. And I remember what drafting magic was like. You could force strategies once you saw that something was open because there was enough redundancy in how cards functioned um, that, that you would get something that did, like you would get a card that did the thing that you needed it to do, and it was just sort of a case of power level after that. But in Eternal, you can't. You can't really get for sure. Like for like, let's take uh, Send for the Reserves for example. It's a card that creates more than one soldier. It's the only card that does that. Um, but it's so fundamental to the way soldiers are supposed to play that if you end up with a soldiers deck without Send for the Reserves in it, you're operating at a huge disadvantage because it weakens all of the cards that want you to play a bunch of soldiers. Um, there's not even one card that is a soldier that makes another soldier beyond Send for the Reserves. So uh, you can't count on being able to draft that deck if you want to. Um, Instead, I, I mean, there's something that I like about drafting Eternal because you can't consistently draft archetypes. So sometimes you just kind of have to make up an archetype, like 99% of the time, really. Um, but 
it means that taking advice from general magic draft strategy and trying to apply to it, apply it to eternal does not work. I mean, I had a really hard time getting into eternal draft and I was very good at magic draft when I started playing eternal. I could not use my magic draft strategies because they just did not function um, because eternal's uh, card distribution is so different. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So that, that was, that was, that's interesting. That is, that kind of follows my sense of how to draft Eternal. Um, you know, as Shab says, like Eternal just really um, rewards being boring and trying to draft for consistency as compared to drafting to spike a draft. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's so easy to just com- get completely cut off if you try to spike a draft. Um, Even if you are halfway through a trap and you think this is open, I'm definitely getting this 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 deck. Uh, Maybe maybe pack three is your entire strategy is cut off because who knows? Somebody decided to just start, you know, somebody decided to draft five colors in the middle of their draft. And now (laughs) like and, and now they're taking all of the fire sentinels that you were counting on getting. Who knows? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, so my draft was, week was okay. Thanks for asking. I um, how was your draft week, Patrick? I uh, I finally played a few of the games. This is what always happens to me when I promise something on on the podcast that requires me to draft on my computer. Uh, I then need to find time where I am in front of a computer and have an extended period to play multiple games. And so I was spent about a week waiting for that to happen uh, in order to record the games from the draft that we did last week. But, oh, sure. uh, but I done? did that. I, I've played four games so far, um, and I'm 4-0. Okay. And, uh, Sounds like what those... we were doing so far has been working. Yeah. Yeah, it got, the fourth game got a little dicey, uh, <laughs> my opponent played uh, the uh, um, that four cost fire relic that you can pay for to deal one damage. Oh sure, I don't think I've had that played against me ever. <laughs> yeah, and I had like four of the cards in my hand were X ones, and I was like, uh oh, I was like. I can't lose this game, though. But we're going to really have to dig deep because this is this is going to be very embarrassing if I learn to lose to a, a turn four Spitfire, yep. whatever it's called. Well, it's a budget auto tread. <laughs> so. Yeah, but, uh, but we managed we managed to we managed to come through. So that was that was it was a close call. I was going to have to quit the draft or something. I don't know. So remind me, we that. have basically an Argentport deck. Were we splashing anything, or was it? We uh, well, you know, we were splashing a Metal Fang, of course. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. But that's it. Yeah, it's a uh, it's just a typical Argentport deck with a lot of X ones and and you know auto loses more or less to auto tread and uh, turns out the Spitfire uh, <laughs> relic. But um. All right, so that was my draft week. Uh, I, it did kind of reinvigorate me. I kind of talked last week how I was a little burnt out, and then I had been not doing particularly well. Like, 
you know, when when you talk about you're like, oh, I had a bad run of a five three and a four three and a six three. Well, you know, after going having five two threes in a row, I was kind of like, eh, maybe eternal draft's not for me. I don't know. Maybe maybe I just wasted the last two years of my life recording ninety of these episodes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but then we, we, I won four games in a row, so I'm 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 you know feeling a little better about eternal draft. Okay, good. Well, um, we can always we can always do a joint draft because I I mean even if you don't win after we uh, if you're playing a deck that we drafted together, at least part of the responsibility is not on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree. I definitely feel like I wish I could incorporate more co-drafts into uh my schedule because i do enjoy just like talking through the picks and i don't know i just like talking through drafts and plays a lot and uh you know so i would like to try to do that more shall we go to card of the week yeah let's go which is not card of the week what yeah so i was looking at discord today and uh tempest dragon does this every once in a while where he comes in uh, needing to vent about something that happened in the main discord. And I saw that you had commented on this long thread of people talking about what people were talking about on the main discord. And so it seemed very interesting, but I didn't really want to read the whole thing. So I was hoping to use the opportunity of card of the week for you to explain what people were talking about. Yeah, and I uh, will disappoint you because uh, I read as much of that conversation on the main Discord as I could bear and then stopped. Uh, so I got the gist of it, uh, and and I responded to that, and people seemed to think that that was a good take on on the conversation. So I guess I guessed right. <laughs> I guessed correctly. Uh, so the conversation... Well, you could fool me, because I have read zero of it. Fair enough. Um, really, a lot, of, a lot of this deal is to just pretend you never make mistakes. <laughs> um, but uh, in this case, uh, the conversation was about the plunder ability, uh, which, as a reminder, is a, is a keyword on some cards, where when you play them, you can choose a card in your hand, and if it is a non-power card, you can turn it into a power card. And if it is a power card, like a sigil, you can turn it into a treasure trove, which you can then uh, is a spell that draws a card and costs two. So it's basically an ability that can either get you more power when you need it, or if you have too much power, turn it into a card draw. And the conversation on the main Discord was that there were a couple of people saying that you should almost never turn something into a treasure trove, that you should always be using plunder to create power and therefore um, ensure that you can play your cards on curve. And I think Tempest Dragon King and maybe a couple other people were saying that plunder's value is that you can do both, and it's often a very good idea to turn a, a sigil that you don't need to be power into a card draw instead. And the people on the Discord were disagreeing with that and saying that turning a power into a treasure trove is bad because it costs two. 
to then draw a card. I disagree with that, <laughs> as <laughs> Tempest Dragon King does. And that, I mean, I, it's it's almost too silly to, like, break it down. Um, because obviously turning, like, power flood in draft is a thing that happens sometimes. And anything that can keep flood from being a problem is obviously valuable. Um, but they seemed very hung up on the idea that it costs two to draw the card with Treasure Trove. That Treasure Trove itself is a bad card that you wouldn't put in your deck, and therefore turning a sigil into a Treasure Trove is a bad idea. Um, I think that's silly. Uh, I, I think that that is a... I, and I think what it comes from is an idea that draft is, should be entirely based on tempo, like getting a board advantage and then pressing your board advantage. And that if you get into a board stall or a situation where you want to outdraw your opponent, that you've done something wrong. That if you're playing for value, then you, you've, you've messed up and that draft game doesn't really count because you, what you were supposed to do was to get tempo, curve, overwhelm your opponent, uh, and win. And I think that well, we don't have the luxury of having every game go that way. <laughs> like, it's great if you can make a game go that way. And by all means, the games where you can tempo your opponent out before they get to play their cards, uh, those feel good. But you don't always get to do that. Your opponent is trying to stabilize if you're ahead on the board. And if they do, then playing for value is sometimes what you want to do. You want to draw cards so that you can get more flyers in the air. You want to draw cards so you can simply trade on the board until you have more uh, more cards physically in play. Uh, and then uh, and then you're going to be using plunder to to turn your sigils into treasure troves. Um, it's not that you've messed up. It's that there's two people playing the game, and you your opponent might not have succumbed to your tempo. I, I guess, I guess the other part of the discussion is when you are plun playing a plunder card early, uh, and sometimes you have the option to turn a sigil in your hand into a treasure trove a few turns before you're actually going to be able to cast the treasure trove. That can feel bad because you can't cast the treasure trove for free. Um, it's just kind of sitting in your hand, not being a card that does anything for a while. Uh, but there's times when that's correct, uh, especially if you have a really good sense of how much power your deck needs to function and you know that you can freely turn a sigil into a treasure trove uh, because you're going to want to draw that card at some point. You don't need, like, say, three Justice Influence, but you have three Justice Sigils in hand. Maybe you just turn that third one into a Treasure Trove so that you can draw into the second Primal Source that you'll eventually need. Something like that. Um, and sometimes you don't want to plunder at all. Uh, you just need the body on the board, and you have to waste the plunder ability. It depends on the situation. So saying that you always want to be turning... Um, non-power cards into power with the plunder ability just so that your your first few turns run more smoothly is i think incorrect and uh i guess the third part of the discussion was if you have plunder cards such as okessa's audience in your deck can you just run fewer sigils and i would disagree i don't think you do i think that because plunder can turn power flood into card draw 
um, that you run exactly the number of sigils that you would if none of your cards say plunder. And then um, and then your early plays will tend to plunder non-power into power. You, you, you plunder for sigils, and then your later plays plunder for treasure troves. And that's the power of the ability is that you can do is that you can do both. I think it's narrow to look at it as uh, as though part of the plunder is is going to be used that much more often. I would say I use them around 50 50, but I use them pretty often. I, I often it's very rare that I'll play a plunder card without plundering. Um, mm -hmm. You can usually improve your hand one way or the other. I mean, in one sense, I think it's a, a pretty fascinating that this discussion's happening at all because we've had two sets of plunder now and the fact that people can still be disagreeing about this mechanic i think really shows just how difficult you know this mechanic is to evaluate and play yeah it is it's subtle i think it's one of the best uh, mechanics that they've introduced in terms of limited play and um, and, and I also think how people are using it is evolving too, you know, because like sort of the summary that you gave a plunder here, I think is maybe like a little different than how we've spoken about plunder before on the show. And I think we both started with Okessa's audience being close to like close to replacing a power or, or like a seek power. And um, also, I know that you've kind of gone up and down on, especially in the last set, you know, where you had a lot of sort of medium plunder cards like uh, Shifting Illusion and stuff, where trying to evaluate whether those, like the plunder ability on that was worth anything. And, um, and you know, I, I guess... I. I and, like, another interesting thing is I know, like, Shab um, of Let's Talk Limited, you know, has talked on Discord about how they almost, they actively try not to plunder, you know, plunder a card into a sigil. Like, they view plunder as in a, a way to mitigate flood in the late game, which was kind of a surprising to me because... I actually said I would say that I I lean to maybe closer to what the main discord was saying where I view plunder as a way to keep more like make more hands playable and then being able to plunder power later is like a bone is the bonus ability to it. Um, yeah, I, I would say that I'm closer to that. I don't usually miss a card if I have to turn it into a, a sigil because there's more cards in my deck. I'll draw one every turn, you know? Um, yes. I don't mind losing the quote value uh, on that. Um, especially if my deck is just generally strong, you know, I want to be able to play my cards. Um, and there, and we, this is an aggressive format. A lot of the time people can get some really strong starts. So if I'm just sort of dinking around waiting to get the maximum value from all my cards, I'm going to get run over a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so like to two sort of follow up questions I kind of had is like, 
It's always interesting to me is like when you have a plunder card that you draw late game, like whether you're supposed to wait till you draw a power to play it or not. It really depends uh, on whether you need it on the board right then. Because yeah. I will often wait to, to until I draw a power to convert it into a treasure trove. Um, if, if I don't need that card on the board... If it, if I've got if we've gotten to the late game and it's some side some kind of standstill like where neither one of us has a major advantage then I'll definitely wait for that uh, for that sigil so I can draw an extra card yeah um, mm-hmm. but if I need it on the board then you know it's it it, it better be on the board yeah so th- I think that's always like interesting is <laughs> like because then you're like getting value but you're like really losing tempo <laughs> tempo because you're just like. I don't know. It's it's just like an interesting when you're like not playing cards because you want it to hopefully draw you a card if you draw a power. And the other thing is if we're viewing if people are viewing plunder more as a value thing and less as a tempo play to be able to like you know turn an early card into a sigil to play more of your cards. Like does that mean that like later game like more expensive plunder cards are actually better than we were initially giving them credit for uh you know this card isn't good for other reasons but you know like the five primal four four uh reckless regen is that does it have reckless it has reckless regen and plunder right yeah yeah so, you know, like one of the things we said is plunder is kind of weird on this card because it's a five cost card. But if we're viewing plunder as a way to draw a card later in the game, then maybe the fact that it costs five isn't, you know, maybe plunder still has a surprising amount of value on that card. I think it's it has less value than it does on a two drop, though, because you're less likely to be able to use one part of, of the of the description of plunder. Because you're almost mm-hmm. always going to be turning um, a, a sigil into a treasure trove with that um, with with that card, and almost never like turning something uh, into a sigil so that you can play, say, your six drop next turn. So I think that plunder that's not like why it's a bad card. It's a bad card because it has reckless, but it uh, it makes it so plunder doesn't mean as much on that card as it does on a cheaper card. Right, but then like that brings up like I think almost the perfect counterpoint on the other end of the spectrum of that, of like shifting illusion where like, if you, if you have a shifting illusion and you top deck that late in the game and you're like, well, I'm going to hold this so I can plunder something to draw another card. You're like, you might as well have just had a better card in your deck. Do you know what I mean? Because it's of so little value. Like, the fact that it's cantripping is almost, you know, you really would have just been better having a better card in your deck than... But in that case... A... But in that case, yeah, the, the 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 then the meaning of plunder on that card shifts all the way to the other side of the scale, where it's much more valuable playing it on turn one and making sure that you can play on curve after it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because yeah, yeah, it's not great as a card that kind of draws another card. Um, it, it, so yeah, the sweet spot is like 
two and three power <laughs> for plunder because then uh or, well no i mean the sweet spot is something like bastion gatekeeper which is a still a big threat when you draw it late game and it can draw you a card because it plunders or, uh but also it's an it's a it's a good sized body for a two drop that can fix your curve early in the game so that's why Bastion Gatekeeper is such a great card, is because Plunder is being used to its fullest extent. Yes. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And I guess I just think that it's like, that's what's interesting about talking about Plunder as a great mechanic, because you can talk about how great Plunder is, but it still needs to be on a good card. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like... It it can't make up for it can't make up for a horrible card. No, um, no, it can't. And I it's why that's why it felt so weird in the first set where it was introduced is because it was mostly put on bad cards, and so you had to constantly try to figure out whether plunder was worth it uh, to play. Sorry, to play objectively bad cards, um, and with like the exception of the uncommons like Spirit Weaver and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, Desert well, Alchemist. What a great card. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Uncommons were pretty good in that set. That had Plunder. Yeah, I think um, it was a great idea for them to make actually good cards have Plunder on them as well. Uh, it makes it much more interesting. Yeah, because you're not it's you're not hurting your deck quality as much to to boost consistency, which is which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, it feels better when cards you know work. all right i think that was a great summary and i think that was a great replacement for card of the week thank you hats thank you no no thank you yes um all right so we'll move on to our seven (laughs) breakdown (laughs) um we'll get this out of the way so i can finally shut up um so this is our long-standing data collection project here, Farming Eternal, where uh, listeners, well, we collect everyone's seven win drafts, um, which you can send in to farmingeternal at gmail.com or to our seven win channel on the Discord where people can comment about how great you are for getting seven wins. Um, and then we put them in a spreadsheet and we do a little bit of analysis on them and we talk about it here on the podcast as well as you get the benefit of me reading your name. So we have one new contributor this week, Ash Acer, as well as our veteran contributors of Agent Dynamo, Alabazoo, Beard Broken, Cotillion, Darth Herman 2, Gunner 116, Hats on Lamps, Hot Sip of Cold Tea, It Long No, Jandy, Jed the Homerated, Sleffer 13, Vader, and Who Does That? And as always, thank you to John Holio for entering the lists. We still have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to go through this quickly. We now have 103 drafts of the new format. And what I said last week is still kind of holding true. Fire and Shadow are our top decks. Uh, Then the second tier is Justice. So Justice has definitely gone down in um, the overall meta share of 7-1 decks that we receive. So Fire and Shadow are are definitely a step above that. And then it's primal, and then time is still well behind in last place in only 25% of decks, as compared to Fire and Shadow, which are in 45-ish percent of decks. Um, 
And fire continues to be the biggest splash color that we're seeing. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And that seems to check out, you know, you were saying last week that a lot of your decks that are doing well have fire in them. Yeah, at the beginning of the of this version of the format, for sure, I was getting consistent results with fire, and it was really hard to, to make something work without it. Um, I've had some success with other kinds of uh, decks since. I had actually one of my favorite decks uh, of all time, um, and definitely one of my favorites of this format, and it was an Elysian deck. We did an episode on Elysian a ways back, and so I finally got like just the ultimate Elysian deck together and played it and got a 7-0 with it, so that was fun. Uh, it was not a normal deck, though, like made of normal common Elysian cards. There were no Maveloft elites. It did have two hardinesses, but but or maybe one Mavel. No, 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 no Maveloft elites in that deck at all. And I had three Glen Scouts. Uh, that's one of the side effects of of people sort of committing early in this format to whatever faction they happen to be in pack one is they won't pick cards like Glen Scout that are two factions and might be hard for them to play. And so if you like see one of those and move in on it because you're staying open, maybe you'll get a couple more. <laughs> and uh, so there are three Glen Scouts and like two Goliath fly traps. And I had um, the five cost relic that draws you a card when you, uh, when you uh, damage your opponent, which is real good with Glen Scout because, you know, you make this flyer and then this whole army to attack with. Uh, but then the crowning uh, bit of that deck was a Quicksilver Mirror, which is a seven-power primal artifact. And at the beginning of each one of your turns, it clones one of your units in play. Um, and if it's Glen Scout, then it activates the Amplify, and you can again, and you can, <laughs> and then you can make more Mandrakes. <laughs> so I had several games where I got down to a board stall. Uh, and I had a Glen, Scout, a Glen Scout in play, and then a Quicksilver Mirror, and then just every turn made as many Mandrakes as I felt like. <laughs> it was hard to lose after that. So Yeah, no, that's pretty sweet. It was one of those um, one, yeah. one deck at a million kind of things, though, where I saw something that happened to be open. It was like, will this work? I hope so. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad that uh, things other than fire are, are now working for you. Occasionally, yeah. Occasionally. Fire is still more uh, consistent than anything else, though. I, I will say that. All right. So I think we can move on to this main topic. So, uh, Ooh, what's our main topic? <laughs> Why don't you tell me? <laughs> okay, uh, so I suggested this because uh, of, of 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 the particular texture of this format right now, um, and it's about making them have it. Uh, I think it's something that we all think about if we draft Eternal. Is uh, is is because your opponent has all of this uh, unseen information in their hand uh, and combat tricks and things. Uh, how do you attack into their board knowing that they might have uh, something to ruin your day? Um, and so I wanted to talk about a few different aspects of that idea. Um, uh, and I guess I'll... Uh, I guess I'll just sort of start with the basics. Uh, let's just say that you know that your opponent has a combat trick, and you know that because uh, they have... Uh, there's a pause after you do things, uh, and so you know that your opponent has a fast spell, and because most people... Most fast spells are combat tricks of some kind, either removal or some way of buffing one of their units. Um, 
then you know that uh, the outcome of a com- of a combat phase uh, is a little bit uncertain. And and what do you do? Um, and I think I th- I think part of the psychology uh, that kind of messes with people is they don't want to get got by a combat trick. You know, they don't want to lose a good unit to a bad unit that has a combat trick played on it. You don't want to lose your four four to a two two that's temporarily a five five. Feels unfair. Um, but you also have to recognize that if your opponent has a combat trick in hand, there's no way to make them discard it uh, other than, I guess, whatever the card is that makes people discard things right now, but it's a rare... Exploit. Exploit. It's other than exploit. Uh, you can't look at your opponent's hand with very, very easily in Eternal. So they're going to get to use their combat trick at some point. And so once you have them on a combat trick, it's kind of your job to mitigate the damage of that. Uh, and make them use it and try to control how badly it hurts you. Um, and basically, whenever you enter combat, once you know that your opponent has some kind of trick to play, you're making a decision about how much value you are giving to them. And you're offering, like, you if you if the only thing you have to attack with is a 4-4, then uh, it's no bad thing to have that die to a combat trick if you can follow it up with another 4-4, because now you still have an advantage um you're, you you have to decide whether it's okay to trade your unit for that combat trick and if you and if there's no way that you can win if your 4-4 gets eaten by that 2-2 plus a finest hour uh then you don't want to attack but if you have a plan for after your unit gets eaten then it doesn't matter if you lost value if you still win the game so let's say that it's uh not a finest hour. Let's say that it's straight up removal, like biting winds or an execute, like a, a piece of removal that only applies if you attack with your unit. Basically, you know um, if you have your opponent. I want to also say it's hard to know exactly what your opponent has in their hand. There's so many fast spells. <laughs> Sometimes you get it. Sometimes you know. You know, I bet they have biting winds. Uh, they started leaving up power at three, and they don't seem to be ever le- ending their turn without three power up. And I have this unit that wants to attack. Sometimes you know it's biting wins. Uh, rarely do you know exactly what they have in their hand. You just sort of have a general idea of how much damage they can do with the amount of power that they have open. But let's say that there's uh, they have a biting wins in their hand. You have a 3-3 three, three on the table. You have a 5-5 five, five unit in your hand. If you attack into Abiding Winds, and they spend it on your 3-3. That's an even trade. But essentially, you are protecting your 5-5. Let's say you have a 4-4 on the table with a 5-5 in your hand, and you're attacking into Abiding Winds. That feels like a bad trade, but it still protects your 5-5, because the Abiding Winds is going to kill something. You can't get rid of your opponent's removal except by baiting it out. That's the only way that you can destroy removal. Of course, Biting Winds, if you have a combat trick in your hand, sometimes you can get them. They cast the Biting Winds, and then you play the combat trick, and you really slam them for a lot of damage. But that situation is rare enough uh, and obvious enough that you rarely have to think about it. Anyway. One of the situations that's, interesting for me with like especially a card like biting winds is if like say you attack with your three three and you think they might have a biting winds and then they don't play the biting winds um because they want to get more value with it and then you play your five five 
and now you have a 3-3 and a 5-5 on the board. What informs you whether you should then attack with the 5-5? If they continue to leave 3 power up, I might just attack with the 3-3 after that. It kind of depends on a lot of factors, I guess. Like, if you have more plays after that. Um, But if you are ahead on board and you're dealing damage every turn, you're and uh, like you're dealing, uh, you're dealing more damage than your opponent is dealing to you each turn. Um, then it kind of doesn't matter if you're if you have a five five on the board that isn't attacking because you're still winning. And eventually they're going to have to spend the biting wins on the three three, and then you get to attack with the five five. Uh, it's uh, like they know that you have the five five, and in a sense you're making them constantly take damage by <laughs> making them keep abiding wins in hand. Plus, they're not spending it. That's three power that they're not spending every turn. It's going to waste. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is a, that is a winning proposition, is making your opponent waste three power per turn, doing nothing. Yeah. You only have to be a little bit ahead in order to win a game. Um Like, there are definitely times when you want to be a lot ahead because then it'll be harder for your opponent to stabilize. Uh, And that's always a judgment call. It's kind of a high-level judgment call to to say, like, uh, like this game will be won by overwhelming force rather than incremental damage. Um, But you get a sense for that. Um, And if your opponent is, is... avoiding spending power because they want to get the most value out of their cards, you don't need as much tempo to beat them. You can beat them with a little tempo because they're wasting so much of theirs. Yeah, I think that was a good answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, The next thing I wanted to talk about is the reason why I brought up this whole topic. Uh, Because because Amplify is in this format um, and it's on some of the combat tricks, uh, we're we're in sort of a unique situation where the uh, where some combat tricks scale so well that you don't want to wait for your opponent to play them late in the game. And uh, the marquee card for that is Martial Efficiency, which is a two justice fast spell uh, that gives one of your units plus three plus three, and then every time you amplify, puts a minus one minus zero um, attachment on one of your opponents. Unit. So it's one of the best cards in the format, period. It really destroys an entire combat phase. Um, it's very hard to play against if your opponent... Uh, like, if your opponent has a martial efficiency and a lot of power open, you're going to get hurt pretty badly. Um, and then there's also Hardiness, which is the one primal uh, fast spell that gives a unit plus two health and um, amplifies for one to give a unit an additional plus two health. And that can be spread freely around units. Uh, and because Naval Off Delete exists, the 2-2 two, two that gets plus one, plus one every time you amplify, Hardiness essentially makes uh, Naval Off Deletes huge while also giving them a health boost. So the turn they play, uh, the turn you play Hardiness with a Naval Off Delete on board uh, is usually pretty devastating for your opponent. So these cards are super hard to play against if you just wait around, like if you do what we were talking about a moment ago and wait and try to get the most value um, and try to reduce the amount of value that your opponent gets from their tricks. Because the longer you wait, 
the more value they get from something like hardiness or martial efficiency. So my tactic for dealing with martial efficiency, because again, you can't make your opponent discard it, they're going to get you with it to some degree, is to just make them use it early. <laughs> and I think it's a thing that uh, that not everyone is doing. They sort of feel like, well, they had martial efficiency, I guess I lose. But you can make them use martial efficiency fairly early in the game if you're not afraid of the value that they get from it. Um, and I have, uh, I have gotten into the habit, if I have my opponent on martial efficiency or hardiness, and it's easier to have them on hardiness than it is martial efficiency, because sometimes they'll play a primal card, and then you'll play a one drop, and then there will be a pause. And it's like, oh, I'll bet that's hardiness. Uh, the answer is often to give them a trade that looks good for them. Like, if, if you give them an enticing trade, something that they can devour with a martial efficiency or a hardiness, uh, then uh, you're, still, you're still getting gotten because the, that, that trick is still going to get you. But it's not as bad as if you waited until they had eight power up and they could destroy your entire board. So uh, I'm basically just saying that you uh, playing aggressively is real good in this format a lot of the time and attacking aggressively um, because getting your opponent's combat tricks out of their hand earlier is more valuable than it ever was before. Mm -hmm. You can't do much about them top decking a martial efficiency when they when they're already at eight power. Then that's going <laughs> to hurt no matter what. Um, but if they're saving a martial efficiency to get the maximum value, you got to be aggressive. There's no other way to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the, the fact that there's these amplify combat tricks and just a lot of fast spells in general has made you more aggressive than usual um, in this format? Uh, yeah, I think so. I would say that, except that I've always played with a, I've always I always attack a lot uh it's rare that there's a format where i think you know what defense is the best play in this <laughs> this is is the best strategy now it's rare that i find a format that's like that i usually attack if it's at all reasonable to do so oh, but, well yeah it's maybe this says more about me then because i never really considered you a very aggressive player uh -huh. because you are probably less aggressive than i am sure um, so it's interesting to hear you talk about yourself as an aggressive player. Um, I mean, I, I've only, only compared to my opponents, uh, because I, I, if there's a board stall, I am almost always the one attacking like my largest unit into it. Um, yeah. whereas my opponent is like, no, not until I can get really great value and be guaranteed of it. And I'll just be throwing a throwing my shoulder enders in there to see how much damage they can do. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I do think that's a better, I think that is a good way to play. It's sort of a different topic and one we can get into yeah. more. And we have talked about before, but yeah, no, I, I just wanted even. to sort of get a sense of whether you think that has made you more aggressive in the format, just like trying to bait out some of these super powerful combat tricks. Yeah, it definitely has. Yeah, I yeah. would say that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, after getting after getting just like overwhelmed by Mabeloft to lead into hardiness a couple of times, I just realized the only way to deal with that was to 
give them a pretty good trade instead of a great trade. Like a pretty good trade now instead of a great trade later. Right, yeah. Exactly. So should we move into questions from uh, the Discord? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Right. Um, okay. So Why don't, Yeah, you should can I, read the question. I'll, Absolutely. Read, I'll read them since I don't have anything to say. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So our, our first question is from Full Robot, and uh, they ask, uh, when should you go for lethal if your opponent has power up? and could end up killing you on the turn after if they survive. So those are these are situations where it really comes down to the specific board state and like that's a usually a very complicated question um yes that, that that's very situational, you know. But as a general rule of thumb, I like to go for lethal. <laughs> if it, with no other knowledge, uh I will because often when you're in a situation where your opponent can kill you on the next on the crackback, but you could, might be able to kill them now, you're both probably running pretty low on resources. You know, if you don't know whether they have a fast spell or not, they probably don't. They usually don't. Like they've used their fast spells at this point. You both you're both trying to get an advantage, and you're both at low life. Probably you've used most of your relevant cards. So um, I will generally go for it. I don't know if that's right in the Magic the Gathering draft. It's not right because your opponent will probably have something in their hand still. But in Eternal draft, I find more often than not, they don't. Or they don't have a card that's relevant to this specific situation. <laughs> or if you're against a fire opponent, all of their spells are to do more damage to you, not to prevent damage to themselves. So go for lethal. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I, I this is an interesting question cuz I this is one where I find myself playing differently against high-ranked players and I think to my detriment like I try to play around things more sort of the the, the better my opponent is and I find that ends up biting me in the butt more often because I will instead of going for lethal try to play around something and then just let them stabilize and lose the game from there and so I kind of agree with you that more often than not you should just go for lethal because yes they may have it because they're a good player and probably have good cards in their deck but because they're a good player with good cards in in their deck, you don't really want to extend the game either. Um, yeah, you're giving them the opportunity to draw more good cards. Sure, and uh, and I think like if you want to be in that state where you more or less know what your opponent's resources are, which means that you want to trade aggressively, you want to bait out as many of their combat tricks and stuff as you can. Um, especially if you have a specific plan for doing lethal damage after you've done all of that. Like, if your plan is to attack in the air and then, let's say, uh, boost... What's uh, what's the Amplify card that does a whole bunch of damage in fire and you can spread it around? It's very fireball-y. Um, 
It's not in set 10, but it's in the draft packs. Bottoms up. Bottoms up, yeah. If you've got a bottoms up in hand and your plan is to do lethal a couple of turns earlier than your opponent thinks they'll be able to with bottoms up, um, and you have like, uh, and you have an, an air unit that can do it on its own, but you also have ground units, you probably also want to be attacking with the ground units. You don't need them to win, but you do want your opponent to have to deal with more than just your flying unit. Because if they have removal that they can just use on the flying unit, they're going to do that. But if they're forced to use tricks and removal on your ground units as well, then they can't stop that sudden lethal on the turn that you finally cast bottoms up. Um, You want to be controlling your opponent's resources as much as you can. And you can't do that 100%. Your opponent's also playing Eternal. But... um, you can at least be putting pressure on them um, and and attacking from more than one side so that they can't keep as many tricks in reserve. All right, great. So uh, next question is from Tempest Dragon King, who asks, how important is noticing a pause in your decision-making? And my answer is very. Uh, <laughs> because, again... It's a game of information in a lot of ways, uh, and and knowing exactly what your opponent has in hand is a huge amount of power. As uh, the power in combat tricks, a big part of it is uh, the fact that your opponent doesn't know what exactly you're capable of doing. Um, most of the right now, most of the combat tricks are capped out at at plus three plus three, so. Um, uh, like, uh, you know, Rampage gives three power, uh, Martial Efficiency gives plus three, plus three, Finest Hour plus three, plus three. Uh, it's not a world where Wind Conjuring can get them that extra strength and health and, and really blow you out and draw a card and all of that. Uh, so that's nice. Um, but there's still enough variety that if you can place them on exactly martial efficiency, even though they, that's a, that's going to be a strong card. Um, you still can, you still can attack with, uh, with, with more or less perfect information rather than constantly hoping that it's not something worse. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately it just comes from, having a lot of knowledge of what they're likely to have and what the differences are between those spells um, that make that make that pause, the telltale pause that they have a fast spell occur at different times. Like, basically what you need in order to be able to identify a spell is to notice exactly when the pause occurs for the first time and what caused it. Uh, to start occurring. Like, if they reached a new threshold of, of uh, open power, like, and then they suddenly start having a pause, then that's obviously a very good indicator. If there was no pause on two, but there is a pause on three, that changes drastically the things that you have to start playing around. Also, if they have a new threshold of faction influence, if they've been, if they had mono justice and then they added a fire influence, uh, and now there's a pause. That's changes that changes the things that you have to start playing around. But of course, also maybe now they have three power instead of two, and then basically you've got no information. <laughs> you could be almost anything. But sometimes, uh, 
Uh, my favorite thing, uh, my favorite like fine point to tell what uh, my opponent's fast spell is likely to be is that some combat tricks only work on your own units and some work on any unit. Like Finest Hour um, will can be cast on either player's units. So if my opponent starts with a Justice Sigil, plays nothing, I play a one-drop, and then there's a pause, I will have them every time on Finest Hour for the rest of the game until they play it. And I'm usually right. But if they leave two power up, like let's say they played two Justice Sigils, they play nothing, I play a unit, and there's no pause, but then they play a unit and leave two power up, and there is a pause, now I've got them on Martial Efficiency. Because they can't play Martial Efficiency on my unit, but they can play it on theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the my weakest points in my game, because I have a lot of trouble even just identifying when there is a pause. Sure, yeah, you got to be paying pretty close attention because some players will minimize the pause as much as possible by clicking through their turn as quickly as possible or even just playing units before they attack so there's no pause definitely yeah and i think this also might be a small disadvantage of playing on mobile because there's just like a little bit of lag and so sure it's sometimes just like hard and so it's just like an aspect of the game that i honestly don't pay that much attention to um but it it is also interesting to hear you talk about you know like i guess i just wonder how much how much you're paying attention to your opponent's power usage you know because like a lot of the things you talked about um you talked about in like a comparative form is like they had to open power and there was no pause and then they had three open power and there was a pause. So you're like not only noting pauses, but you're noting lack of pauses and sort of their power situation, even when there is no pause. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like let's take Fatal Mista, uh, which is a good example, because it's a card that can really get you pretty hard. So it pays to know how to play around it. Fatal Misstep is the two-shadow fast spell uh, kill a unit um, that your opponent played this turn. Um, and if my opponent has, uh, has shadow influence and two power open for my turn, and I play a unit and they don't have a pause before their turn, then that is a massive amount of information for me. They don't have a Fatal Misstep. Now, if I have... A uh, if I have like a barricade basher, which really hurts when it gets fatal misstep because you discarded a card and played a card and now it's in the void. Uh, then knowing that they didn't have a fatal misstep when I played a two drop means that I can play my barricade basher freely on turn three, even if they've left power up. It's a massive amount of information. Yeah. Well, fatal misstep's an interesting one because I like never know when it's correct to play your unit into two open shadow power. Yeah, sometimes you just have to take a risk. But um, but I've definitely had, like, uh, most people, I, I never end up in a deck with, like, three Barricade Bashers anymore, but I'll have one in a deck sometimes. And if my opponent, uh, if I don't know whether my opponent has a Fatal Misstep or not, and I get to turn three, 
um, and I've got a Barricade Basher and another 3-drop in hand, I will usually play the other 3-drop first. Um, mm-hmm. If there's a possibility, it'll get Fatal Misstep. Because it's uh, people play Fatal Misstep often enough, and it's so devastating if you play a Basher into it, uh, that I would rather lose some of my potential tempo in order to bait out the Fatal Misstep so that the Basher can actually do the damage it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating because, like, I don't even know where to begin training myself to pay more attention to. I, I, you know, it's kind. Of, I'm, I will say that, like, like this topic specifically of of analyzing your opponent's pauses is about as high level as like as as tactical play in Eternal Draft gets. Like, it's hard. Because you have mm-hmm. to know what all of the main tricks are that people are likely to be playing, and when all of them activate, depending on the board state. Um, and like at this point, because I paid, I've been paying attention since the beginning of the format. I have a pretty good sense for it, but I miss things all the time. So, and it's also it also means that uh, there's a great deal of value in having a combat trick in your deck that um, that behaves. In terms of 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 uh, of pausing the game, like another combat trick, um, su- such as like, well, bottoms up is a good example actually because bottoms up can be played on any unit, but most fire fast spells that cost only one do damage, like char um, and the one that does one damage to two targets. Uh, so often your opponent, if you if like they play a unit and you've got one fire up. Um, and they notice a pause, will think that you've got a removal spell. Um, and so they'll play around it to some degree, depending on how good they are and, you know, depending on a lot of factors. But they don't think that you have bottoms up because bottoms up is an uncommon. Um, unless, you know, they're extremely next level and somehow they know. Uh, so that's an advantage uh, because you don't have to do anything special now. You have them thinking that you have a card that you don't have and they don't think that you have a card that you do have. So that you can just play freely, and they will play around ghosts until um, you actually play the card in your hand. Um, a good player, if you if uh, in that situation, will know that it's not a removal spell after a certain point if you don't uh, try to kill very high-value targets with it. Like, if they've played, like, a Bast- two Bastion Gatekeepers... Uh, and you didn't kill it, kill them with the with the um, the spell that does one damage to two things. They probably know that you don't have that, but also they probably didn't play two Bastion Gatekeepers if they're a good player because of the uh, possibility that you might have that in your hand. So it's gonna be a difficult situation for it. So that's what I'm thinking a lot of times when I pick a card like Bottoms Up or you know any unusual fast spell uh, that's not boosted or whatever uh, is that it, because but they do see the pause, they're naturally going to be playing around things that I don't have, which is just inherently an advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that kind of leads to um, maybe the second part of his question, but if not, I still think a good follow-up. But, like, so how much are you paying attention to your own pauses and trying to hide them or manipulate that? Less so. For, for me... I will, 
there's definitely time like we're basically talking about whether it's a good idea to play um to play something and use up all your power before going into an attack phase so your opponent doesn't notice that you have a pause um but i kind of like to let my opponent know i have a pause unless there's a good reason to hide the trick from them because they're likely to have me on the wrong card and then play around the wrong thing or if they think I have a combat trick, uh, they'll avoid getting into combat with me, and they'll let me attack for damage that they should actually be blocking. Mm-hmm. I actually right. find yeah. that having them think I have a combat trick allows me to do chip damage that I might otherwise not be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, well, this leads right into our next question from uh, Cotillion. Uh who says, uh, on the opposite side, do you ever bluff an attack in hoping the opponent will think that you might have it? Uh, if so, what are things to consider? For example, make sure you have a fast spell in hand so there's a pause, hold up power, etc. I don't bluff much. Uh, so this is, this is a huge difference between Eternal and Magic, because you can bluff in Magic, because there's no pauses. Um, or in uh, actually, there's constant pauses. <laughs> there's pauses all the time. Yeah. Uh, but in Eternal, it is super hard to bluff because if there's pause, then someone has a fast spell. Uh, your opponent, you can't fake that. And also, I don't like to bluff in Eternal because I don't really know what my opponent is going to do, even if I'm fairly sure of their skill level. They might just, you know, decide to block anyway. You don't know what there's. You don't know what's in their hand. You don't know how valuable the cards they have on the board is. You don't know what they're willing to lose. And by definition, bluffing probably has pretty bad consequences if it doesn't go the way you expect. So I, I, I don't. It's a very a tiny, tiny part of my game. Um, my version of bluffing is to generally try to attack pretty aggressively so my opponents will think I must have something even if I don't because I'm willing to trade make trades on the board um, that other people might not. So uh, sometimes that'll simply cow my opponents into blocking poorly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is almost like bluffing. And also, I think you have to be willing to not spend your combat tricks even if it will get you a temporary advantage. Like, let's say that you're attacking like a 4-4 into a board full of 2-2s two um, and they double block, right? Uh, and you, let's, but, but it's not your only unit on board. It's just an attack that you're making to try to break down their defense a little bit. But you have, say, a finest hour in hand and they block with two 2-2s, two you're 4-4. Four, four. Maybe just let them trade. And don't cast the finest hour if you can get more value from it later. You don't have to, you know. Like there's no requirement yeah, that you get the value the right then. That's one of the hardest things not to do because it's so easy to feel like you're getting like a lot of value with the the free two for one. But you might actually be waste your two for one is like a lot less valuable if you're wasting a premium card to get rid of two crappy cards of there. Exactly. Like you're you're getting a two for one, but the all cards are not created equal, especially once you've already spent them from your hand. Um 
yeah, uh, it, you have to look at how much advantage you're actually getting, not just the numerical, oh, I'm getting a two for one here. Um, it's uh, it, it, having, having a card in hand uh, that you can cast at any time is more valuable than having already spent it as a general rule. Yeah. Yeah, the bluffing thing is really challenging for me because, uh, you know, LSV on the limited resources podcast is often says that everyone more or less should probably be bluffing more than they do. Mm -hmm. But I really have trouble evaluating whether this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier, if this is just a thing that maybe is unique to magic and is not quite as portable to eternal because yeah i i'm with you bluffing in eternal just seems like it can be so punishing that i, I also think, tend not to block or I not think to, it's not to bluff i think it's fundamentally different just just from the fact that magic the gathering always has a pause um mm -hmm. a, after after every phase of everything uh, unless you've turned them off or whatever, um, it's that that means it uh, like bu that bluffing is sort of hard baked into the game. Whereas with Eternal, it's not <laughs> like having 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 the automatic pause really changes whether bluffs even exist. Yeah, and I kind of also wonder if just the sort of playing cards digitally just like changes changes that a little bit because you're being matched up against random people so there's no like it's you just can't tell like the skill in most cases the skill level of your opponent or like why they're doing you know why they're, they're doing something, they don't know your skill level. It's not like if you're two players on the pro tour where, like, if you make a weird attack, like, they might not call your bluff because they know you're, you know, like, you can get into these mind games because both players have some idea of the skill level of the other player, and therefore I feel like bluffing might work better. Or even at, like, a local game store or whatever, if they, if your opponent knows you're a very good player, and then you make a weird attack, they might not block because they think of you as a highly skilled player or or whatever. But like with just like online and it being so anonymous, it just I don't know. It's yeah. Knows? There's a there's a small handful of people where I have a uh, that I play against uh, in Eternal where I have a pretty good idea of how good they are and like what a bluff would really mean and that kind of thing. Um, but still, like you don't know, uh, <laughs> you don't know if you don't know if they just like walked into the kitchen to get a snack. You know, you don't have no idea what's going on. <laughs> they might be in a weird mood. Uh, the, like the stakes are pretty low, it really, uh, for for the game. Uh, that's I know draft games feel like they're kind of high stakes, but they're not. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you just can't really. I don't. I I just can't imagine a situation in internal where I can predict what my opponent is going to do to that degree. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just not, you know, well, I guess not to not call them out to specifically call them out. I just remember a game against Abednego where uh, we were playing and they had a three, three and I had a four, four 
And then they attacked their 3-3 into my 4-4. And I was like, that really doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, they they must have something. And then I spent a really long time like trying to figure out why they would ever attack their 3-3 into my 4-4. And then I was like, well, I'm just black. This it's it's crazy not to block here. So I just blocked and then their 3-3 died. Yeah. And then after the game, uh there were there I was like, so why do you attack your 3-3 into my 4-4? And he's like, well, I you know, just with the, his hand, he didn't have a lot to do. He's like, so I felt like I should at least just try to bluff. And I was like, it just seemed really devastating. It just seems like you should never bluff because you're on a do that against an idiot like me who's just on a call it every time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My logic, my logic was, well, I hope they don't have anything. And then I blocked. (laughs) And they didn't. Great. (laughs) I don't know Um, what they have. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, who can keep track of all these combat tricks? I don't know. I'm just blocking. (laughs) Um, I, All in right. General, so then, I, uh, another yeah. one from uh, from Cotillion. Uh, so, also some opponents, sometimes opponents, quote unquote, having it not only means a fast spell, but perhaps a bomb that they want to play, but are hesitant to do so because you have a deadly or decay unit on board that they want to get rid of first. So at what point will you start trading your deadly decay units rather than saving it for something more impactful? That's a tough question, and it really varies by situation. Um, But you can get clues that that is what your opponent is up to. Um, And I think, like, because your deadly units and decay units tend to be pretty cheap... Uh, most of the time your opponent doesn't want to attack a higher value unit into them. Um, and, a, and a higher value unit is even something like a 2-2 two, two, or 3-3 three, three if you're, let's say, you have a Razor Bot. And that means if they're attacking, like, well, not a 2-2. Two, two. Like, anybody will attack a 2-2 two, two into a Razor Bot because almost everything else in their deck is better than that. But let's say they're attacking a 3-3 three, three into a Razor Bot. I will often let that go because I think that probably means they're trying to clear the way for a larger unit. And I think of Razorbot as essentially removal that I have very little control over. Um, so, yeah, the thing is, is that they can, if they're playing well, simply not play their larger unit uh, and keep on attacking with their medium-sized units uh, and continue doing damage to me. So it depends on what I have in my hand. If I have, like... Let's say I have I started off with a razor bot, but I have the one five flyer in my hand, and it's going to be a couple of turns before I can play it. My opponent's attacking me for like three damage a turn somehow. Like they got you know the the three two Ardenport soldier. Um, I'll probably let it go because I know that I can deal with it with a card that's already in my hand later, even after taking a little bit of damage. If I have no other way of dealing with that three two, and I really have to draw into something. I probably don't want to take a ton of damage, so I might trade with the I might trade with the Razorbot. Um, so, yeah, it it, it 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 depends a lot on what you've got, but you it is a situation that happens um, where you've got something if if you've got decay or deadly units on the board, and you can tell your opponent's trying to get rid of them. Maybe don't let him get rid of all of them. 
I do want to add a, onto that last thing. Otherwise, I'm not completely answering it. Uh, if you draw a card or if you have a card in hand that can deal with a big unit, then you actively want to trade your Razor Bot because that's going to cause your opponent to play that big unit so you can immediately kill it. Uh, so you can kind of next level them with that uh, if they're attempting to use that specific strategy to clear the way for their bomb. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that I don't know if that was worth it. Let's go on to the <laughs> No, no, I think that was good. I think these yeah. were uh, all excellent questions. Uh, our final question was from Jed DeHomrod who uh, asks pancakes or waffles. Uh, and Jed, you're going to have to wait till episode 100, sorry. That's the special pancakes and waffles episode. <laughs> exactly. I, I took too long answering that last question, so we don't have time for it now. Oh, sorry. Yeah, unfortunately. Going a little long tonight. So I do think we'll end our show there. So yeah, I, I hope everyone knows everything they need to know about making them have it. You could um, either take Hats' very detailed advice or my advice of always making them have it on offense and <laughs> And uh, yeah, so so thank you again to all our patrons for making this show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, which could be everyone whose name I read today, uh, a reminder to give us five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm going to keep making that joke as long as Hats laughs. <laughs> Bad. I, I laugh at a lot of things. No you can good join us of in how long Discord. it's funny. There's, there's a link in the show notes. It's, uh, yeah, my Patreon pitches are, uh, Hats is like watching a dumpster, like a car drive off a cliff every time I make my Patreon pitch. That's, that's what his face, his face looks like as, uh, as I continue to talk. Um, but yeah, so join us in our Discord. You can have lovely, uh, lovely discussions. You can listen. You can have. You can read Tempest Dragon. Um, give a summary of what people are talking about in other Discords. Uh, so really, it's it's your place to, to find out what's happening everywhere. And uh, please don't forget to send in all of uh, your seven win deck lists you do this week at farmingeternal at gmail and for the love of God, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts, please. Last time I checked, we had fourth likes on or thumbs ups or whatever on last week's episode. So do it. Figure it out. And uh, remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Good night.